Our topic tonight out of the book of Ezekiel is out of Ezekiel 24, actually after chapter 24 and out of 21. We'll be looking at a text out of both those chapters. Uh, Ezekiel 24, starting in verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. Now, I didn't come through a news feed or, or some other source. I came directly from God. Ezekiel was in Babylon at this time. And so for news to travel from Jerusalem to Babylon, declaring the exact day that the siege started, maybe Nebuchadnezzar had planned it for this day, but, you know, going for such a distance and so many variables, it would probably be impossible to plan the exact day to start the siege. But this is the day, and God showed Ezekiel that this is the day that the siege began. It's actually the third siege that uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, held against uh, Jerusalem. And uh, Ezekiel was taken captive in one of those with, with Daniel and, and Hananiah and Mishael and, and uh, Azariah, as well as many others. Um, and this is the third one, and history confirms that this was the day that the siege did take place. So God was communicating with Ezekiel. God, Ezekiel was hearing from God directly um, and getting uh, the best news information possible, uh, direct from heaven's throne, right? No fake news, no, uh, no uh, partiality there, just straight from heaven. Verse 6, the Lord God says, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it. And so the bloody city here he's referring to Jerusalem and its condition that it was in and uh, as like a pot. And so, you know, Ezekiel, God gave Ezekiel all these different imageries and, and, and things to act out. And one time had him dig through a hole in a wall. Another time he had to lay on his side for 40 days and, and eating, uh, uh, eating food that uh, was cooked over Supposedly, it's supposed to be human dung, and he protested, and God allowed cow dung instead, and, and to make the, the Ezekiel bread with a certain ingredients, and, and all of these various things for signs to the people. And so this is another one of the imageries and parables that God gave to Ezekiel to describe Jerusalem, like a pot, with food boiling inside it and fire outside it. Everything in the pot is surrounded by the cast iron walls of the pot, safe and secure in those walls. Jerusalem, a walled city, everyone inside safe and secure, except when the heat is on and the fire is boiling and the, it gets hot inside and so hot inside, you might want to jump out, but if you jump out, you jump from the pan to the fire, as the saying goes. And so it was an apt illustration of the siege against Jerusalem. They're inside. They can't leave. They can't go out. Fire is outside. The Babylonian army is outside. Inside is not a whole lot better. It's just getting hotter and hotter. The pressure cooker is, is, is heating it up. And uh, as time is going by, it's getting worse and worse. Less food inside. More irritability on everyone's part. And as we've read about other sieges that took place, People having to grab birds, eat birds, eat the dung of birds. People even ate their children. Horrible, horrible atrocities taking place inside. Like a boiling cauldron of meat thrown inside and the, and the fat and 
the scum just coming up to the surface and just boiling there on the surface and no one there to skim it off. And just continuing to boil till all the water is boiled out and it's just sealed onto the sides of the pot. In your filthiness is lewdness. Because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed, you will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. God declares that it's filthiness and filled with lewdness. Why? Because he has cleansed the city. He has cleansed the people. He has provided atonement for us. He has provided the sanctuary service. He's provided the, the offerings to point forward to the coming of the Messiah, who in reality was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that the payment has already been offered. The forgiveness has already been given. Propitiation, atonement has already been made. Justification has already been given. Cleansing and forgiveness is already there, pre-offered. But we refused to be cleansed. And rejected, and that's the worst part of all. That's worse than not knowing of the love of God that's been given to us and offered to us and pre-offered to us and pre-given to us than to have known and to have resisted and rejected that great love that God gives to us. He says, you will not be cleansed anymore. And a lot of people want to end the sentence there, but it doesn't end there. Till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. God in his great love did not give up. And so when the blessings was not enough to draw us to him, when the goodness of God and the prosperity of God was not enough to draw our attention, he then allows the fury to take place. The fire is to take place. He pulls back and allows Satan to have his way with us. And calamities come and trials come. All in a process of trying to awaken us to God's great love for us. We think about this time period that's taking place right here. And Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was in the pot. That was boiling. We look at how many chapters are in the book of Jeremiah and how many chapters are in the book of Ezekiel. And other passages of the Bible writing in this time frame. Tons and tons of chapters. Verses. On this 20 or so year period of time. A very short period of time. And yet God poured out so much messages, so much love, so much warning, so much entreaty. He doesn't give up. He draws us more and more and more. Whether blessings or calamities, to try and get our attention. And God is still there today. Same today. And if we resist his love and resist the goodness that he has for us, then he'll allow calamities to come into our lives to try and get our attention. And there's so much... Maybe you're going through some struggle right now. Maybe you're going through some trial right now. Maybe a health situation or a financial situation. Maybe a problem at work or at school. Some difficulty in your life, maybe in your home. All of it is to try and get us to draw closer to God. If we neglect the goodness and thankfulness that we have, 
Sometimes our problems seem to overwhelm us that we can't even see. But if we're just thankful for, for even the green grass outside, that we can see the green grass. There are many people in this world who can't even see that. Some parts are so desert they don't even have green. Other people are blind and can't enjoy the simple pleasure of seeing a blue sky. And we just focus on the things that we have right at our disposable to be thankful for. All the blessings that God has given to us. All on top of the great love that he has provided for us in already pre-forgiving us and giving us atonement and cleansing us. Forgiving us. Providing a way of escape from the sins of this world. So much to be thankful for. So much to praise God for. So much to appreciate his love towards us. And that's all just in the here and now. And that pales in comparison to the glories that he has in store for us. The new heavens and the new earth. Where the grass will never grow Brown. We'll never die. We'll never have to cut it. That would be the best part of all. <laughs> never have to weed it. Never have to trim it. Verse 14, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and it shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways, according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. We will be judged according to our choices. No one else is responsible. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame our neighbors. We can't blame anyone else. We can't blame our government. We will be held accountable for our own choices. And in the judgment, and there is a judgment day to come. And the Lord said, Son of man, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall not mourn, nor weep, nor shall tears run down, sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead, bind a turban on your head and put sandals on, do not cover your lips, and don't eat men's bread of sorrow. Now as this message was delivered to Ezekiel, I can't imagine what was running through his head. What do you mean by this, God? What? The desire of my eyes, gone in a moment. What is God planning on taking away from me? And I'm not to mourn, not to weep, I'm not to cry, I'm not to go through the mourning process, I'm not to sit shiva, I'm not to show my outwardly how I'm feeling inwardly. Imagine he began to pray. Oh, Lord, spare. But God just told him, I will not relent. I will not go back. There's another time in the Bible where God told someone not to mourn for their dead. It was Aaron when his sons died because of their sins. And Aaron was commanded not to mourn, not to show it. Now Ezekiel beforehand is told that the desire of your eyes will be taken away. 
I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Wow, it's heavy. It wasn't easy being a prophet of God. Doesn't mention Ezekiel praying, Lord, take this cup from me. Lord, I don't want this job anymore if this is what it means. Jeremiah did some of that, but it doesn't mention Ezekiel praying that way. God warned him, and instead of just staying at home and praying, or maybe assuming he's talking about my wife and spending as much time with her as possible, he went about the Lord's bidding, and he went out and spoke to the people in the morning. And that evening, his wife died. And the next day, he did as he commanded. He didn't mourn. As I thought about this in preparation for this sermon, and so God, what if you had asked another of me? How would I respond? How would I react? How could I take it? And I couldn't sleep that night. I, I cried a good portion of the night just thinking about poor Ezekiel, how hard that must have been. Many of us have lost loved ones in trials we've gone through. But for Ezekiel, it was so that it could be a sign as it continues. And the people said, tell us what this means to us, that you behave so. I said, the word of the Lord said, speak to the house of Israel. I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your children whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. So Ezekiel was to be a sign. Demonstrate to the people how they would react when they hear about Jerusalem's fall. And the family that they left behind, their children and loved ones, that perished in the siege and perished in the fires. That they would react likewise. You shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat men's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Now, I don't think when it happens that the people didn't mourn because God commanded them not to mourn, as Ezekiel had to and as Aaron had to. And we have no reason to believe that Ezekiel's wife was living in sin in any way, shape, or form, as Aaron's sons were. And we know that Ezekiel must have loved his wife very much because God had to warn him and tell him and command him not to mourn for her because he knew that he would have otherwise. But the people, they will not mourn, they will not weep, not so much because God commanded it, but because of the shock. On the massive scale, the news coming all at once. The walls have fallen. No, we can't believe it. We didn't think they'd ever fall. To withstand so many sieges, we can't believe this. And the shock, not like one person mourning, another person 
comforting them, but everybody mourning together all at one time. The shock must have been just so great that no one could even mourn. And they had no one to bury. They were there in Jerusalem while the people were in Babylon. It's just, they were just stunned. And so Ezekiel had to be a sign for how they would be. But not only is Ezekiel a sign, he's not the only one who had to go back to his work and continue after the death of a loved one. But God the Father had to stand by and watch as Yeshua died. And he couldn't stop his work. He couldn't stop what he was doing. He had to continue on with life. As he heard his son praying, Lord, may this cup pass from me. May I not have to go through this. May I not have to be the example. May I not have to bear the punishment. May I not have to bear other people's iniquity and be cut off from you. Three times praying intensely, so intense that his blood pressure just rise to the extent that blood began to come from his forehead, sweating blood. But finally, not my will be, but your will be done. He prayed in our behalf. And he bore our sufferings. And he bore our sins. As the Father had to stand back, no doubt wanting to stop it and relieve the suffering and relieve the pain, but he could not. And not only then and not only in that situation, but Yeshua himself stands back and looks on his bride, dead in trespasses and sin. Laodicean, lukewarm, laying around, caring only about ourselves, spiritually dead, dark, selfish, cold to the suffering in the world around us. A wife that doesn't love him, rejects the cleansing, is busy going about doing our own things and our own business while he watches his creative beings suffering and dying without hope, without even a knowledge of God. 2,000 years later and we still haven't taken the gospel to the world. And we sit around, talk to ourselves, and talk to each other and think we're so holy and so righteous. Yeshua told the parable of the bridegroom coming for the bride. And there were only ten virgins waiting. 
And of the ten, all of them were asleep. Five that had extra oil and five did not bring extra oil, but all ten were sleeping when the bridegroom came. We might think we're awake. We might think we're better than others. We might think we're not like the others, but we're no better. We're all sleeping. And sleeping and waiting is no better than not waiting at all. We're not inviting others. We're not warning others. We're not encouraging the others to get the extra oil. We're all just asleep. Waiting for the news to tell us that some major event signals his coming. Waiting for some sign out there. And there is only one sign that we need to be looking for. And when this gospel is preached in all the world, then the end shall come. And that's not a sign we should be waiting for. That is a sign we should be hastening and bringing about. And God sees it day and night, never stops, never takes a break, never goes on vacation, but always and continually watches the suffering of this world and watches people go down to the grave without a knowledge of him and his love. All those whom he's given such great privileges to. He poured out his spirit upon. Sitting around. Doing nothing. Sleeping. And he can't mourn. He doesn't have time to mourn. And no one to comfort him. In his grief. Because we're too busy caring about ourselves, with our selfish prayers, about our needs and our discomforts. Totally ignorant of God's suffering. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you according to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. Now to chapter 21, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face towards Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel, saying, The Lord says, Behold, I am against you. I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both the righteous and the wicked from you. Both the righteous and the wicked suffered together. Both the righteous and the wicked were inside the pot in Jerusalem suffering together. Both the righteous and the wicked lost spouses and lost children. And so too today, the righteous suffer with the wicked. 
O profane and wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown, nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. This is from verse 25 and 26, chapter 21. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And that's what we need to do. It is a humble the exalted. And the exalted is you and me. Where we exalt self, where we lift up self, where we build up self in our pride, in our arrogance that we think we're better than others and we think we're okay, that we get become complacent in our walk with God. We need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so that he can lift us up. And even those who are insecure and fearful and timid, bashful, and say, well, I, I can't. They're filled with exaltation as well. The focus is still on I. I can't. I'm no good. No one likes me. No one commented to my Facebook post. I don't have as many friends as others. Poor me. Still self. It's still self-exaltation. The exalted needs to be laid low. It needs to be humbled before God. All our pride and arrogance and self-esteem Humble the exalted and exalt the humble. Well, who's the humble? The one who left his throne, who humbled himself, who left heaven, who came here to be born among stinking sheep. To be beaten, to be rejected, to be bruised be misunderstood, who humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of the accursed of God. We need to exalt him. He needs to be lifted up. He needs to be lifted up in our lives. He needs to be the one that's seen. He's the one that needs to be praised. He's the one who needs to be told about. He's the one who needs to be talked about. He needs to be exalted. He needs to be lifted up. And he says, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men onto myself. We need to lift him up in our conversations. Lift him up in our minds. And if we lift him up and look up to him, the troubles of this world and the, the scenes of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Lift him up and exalt him. O oh, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. And when we exalt the Lord, in humble self, nothing remains the same. All things become new. 
The things that once bothered us seem as nothing. And the things we once dreaded and feared are conquered in the name of the Lord and overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Verse 27 of chapter 21, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. Overthrown, 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 it shall be overthrown. What's this overthrown? What's being overthrown? We look back to verses just before it. Verse 26. Remove the turban, take off the crown. The crown, O wicked prince of Israel. The prince, the kingship, shall be overthrown and take it down. Why does it say it three times? Well, maybe for emphasis. If you've got one to emphasize, this is it. This king is going down. Nebuchadnezzar is coming through. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. And the crown's going to be overthrown. That could very well be it. It could be because of the three sieges. Babylon sieged Jerusalem three times and overthrown, overthrown, and then the final overthrow. That could apply as well. But I think it has to do with the three overthrowings of the kingship. The first one being when Assyria came in and overthrew the northern kingdoms of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And they were taken out, dispersed. And then the second time, taking place in Ezekiel's day, when Jerusalem is destroyed and the king is taken out and overthrown. But then we come back 70 years later and we rebuild the city by God's grace and reestablish the temple and the sacrifices. And it continues on until 70 AD. And Rome comes in and overthrows it a third and final time. And it's destroyed and the kingship is gone and the temple is gone and it will be overthrown and it's overthrown to this day. And thus we no longer live under a theocracy. We no longer have a theocracy on this earth. We no longer have a country where God is dictating the laws of the land and instructing the king, whether through the prophet or through the Kohanim, through the Urim and the Thurim, instructing him directly. Even though, praise God, Israel is a nation again today since 1948, it is not a theocracy. It is a democracy. It has laws based on principles, Bible principles, and right and wrong, but it's not a direct theocracy directly following the Torah because it's been overthrown. The crown has been taken away. We're not to be under a theocracy now. That's why if they have a rebellious child, they don't stone them. If someone's breaking the Sabbath, they don't stone them. The United States is not a theocracy, although some may want to make it that way. 
Many Muslim countries try and rule under an Islam theocracy, live under Sharia law, under the Quran, but we no longer have a theocracy under God directly in this world. Neither Israel, nor the United States, nor any other country. And God prophesies here that it will not be. And many people would like to end it there, but it doesn't end there. It will no longer be until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Who is that one who will come whose right it is, that he will give it to him? Well, the wicked prince is the one who's taken out in verse 25. And so it's the righteous prince, as Daniel prophesies. The prince of peace, the everlasting God, the king of glory. And it wasn't his first coming. Messiah comes in three comings. He comes in three anointings. The Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one. There were three individuals who were anointed under God's theocracy. They were the prophets who were anointed. They were the Kohenims, Kohenim who were anointed. And there were the kings that were anointed. That's all three a symbol of the Messiah to come. All three a symbol of the Mashiach. Well, the first time he came, he came as a prophet. He came as a servant. He came as a suffering servant. But the third overthrowing mentioned here did not take place yet in his day when he died. There was still some time left. And so the overthrowing was not when he came as the suffering servant, as the prophet. But then the theocracy ended, 70 A.D., and has not until he comes, whose right it is. And he will come. And he will come riding on the clouds of glory. And he will judge this earth. And he will come as judge. He will come as the Kohen, as he's the Kohen Gadol right now, our high priest right now. He will come as that judge. He will come as that Kohenim. And he will judge the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. And he will separate the righteous from the wicked. And the wicked will be gathered up and burned in the fire. And the righteous will be gathered and brought into his barn, taken to heaven with him. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the shofar of God. And the dead and Messiah will rise first. And we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Fear not, let your hearts not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, he said. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you will be also. He comes and he brings us to the new Jerusalem he's preparing for us. And then while they're, we're there, there's a whole topic and Bible study on that. We don't have time to get into that there, but Eventually, then, we come back with the new Jerusalem. And he creates a new heavens and a new earth. And then he reigns as king forever and ever. And then we will be under his rule. Then the crown shall be placed again in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And the righteous prince, 
a righteous king will reign and rule and we will live under his theocracy, under his good leadership, under his goodness, under his mercy, under his grace, under his direction. And all the world will rejoice and all the universe will rejoice for the cleansing will have been complete. His fury would have done its work. His righteousness had done its work. His sacrifice had done its work. His blood and forgiveness and atonement did its work. And the only ones that remain are those that have surrendered their lives to him. And we will live forever and ever. Ezekiel's wife will be resurrected. Ezekiel will be resurrected. We'll get to meet her. One of the questions I'll ask her is, did Ezekiel tell you the prophecy that morning before you died? Did he tell you what God said? Did he prepare you? Or did he think best to leave it a secret? and not worry your head about it. And what was it like being married to Ezekiel? <laughs> and we'll get to ask all the righteous down through the ages what it was like. What was it like to go through Jeremiah? What was it like in the city, in the boiling pot? And one after another they will say, you know, I can hardly remember it. It seemed like a passing moment now compared to all the glories before me. Whatever it was, it was cheap enough to be in this city, to behold the king, to see him face to face with no more mourning, with no more death, with no more sorrow, with no more sickness, with no more sadness. And we will cast our crowns at his feet. And we shall dwell with him forever. As we prepare for that time and prepare others for it as well, as we pray in a moment, God has brought to your mind maybe some situation in your life, maybe some trouble in your life. Maybe you're mourning the loss of a loved one. Maybe they knew the Lord and, and you want to see them again. And you want your life right with God so that you'll see them again. Maybe they didn't know the Lord and maybe you're mourning the lost opportunities to warn them. You want to ask for God's Spirit to come upon you so that you don't miss the next opportunity with the next person in your life. Maybe you've known about God's cleansing and His mercy and His forgiveness and His pre-sacrifice in our behalf. 
Maybe there's some area that you're resisting his cleansing. Maybe there's some area you don't want him tidying up. Maybe there's just one thing in your life. Maybe just one person you're bitter at. Maybe just one person who you don't like. Maybe there's just one person you're angry with. Maybe there's just one act. Maybe there's just one deed. Maybe there's just one habit that you don't want to give up. Maybe there's just one deed, one commandment that God's impressing you to follow and do and you've been resisting and holding back. That applies to you in a moment when we pray. Ask for God's cleansing grace to wash you clean and to cleanse you through and through. Allow Him to remove it from you. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he will give us victory. Maybe there's someone God's impressing upon your mind and heart. Maybe God's placing a burden upon your soul for the lost in this world. Maybe it's someone local. Maybe it's someone you know. Maybe it's someone close at hand. Maybe it's someone you're communicating with through phone or email or some kind of social media. Or maybe it's some people group and God's calling you to maybe to donate or give or go or in some way, shape, or form hasten his coming. In a moment when we pray, ask for God to give you the grace to move forward with the right words, with the right act, with the right deed, and do his bidding by his grace, by his strength, by his power. And maybe you're realizing how asleep we are. And maybe how asleep you are. And maybe you're hearing God's wake-up call to get more serious with him, deeper devotions with him more active in service for him. Maybe some calling you've been putting off. In a moment when we pray, let us let God fill us with his talents, fill us with his ability, fill us with his righteousness to move us forward by his grace and to do as he's called us to do. So if any of those areas apply to you, let us pray. Or maybe God's been pressing you something else in your life. Maybe something's going on in your life this week. It's been weighing heavy on your heart. Maybe something you need to confess. Maybe something you need to surrender. Maybe something you need to receive from God. And as we pray, let God do his work in your life. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy endures forever. Thank you for your long suffering with Jerusalem. Thank you, Lord, for your long suffering with us. 
Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. Thank you, Yeshua, for your sacrifice in our behalf. Thank you for being an example for us. Lord, use us to warn this world and to be an example. Comfort us, heal us, cleanse us, minister to us, touch us, and lift us up before your throne. And may there be more people in the kingdom of heaven as a result of our lives. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.